It's Wednesday, February 18th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio today from Champion Shares Pro, Mike Olson, and from Rule Breakers, David Kretzman. Gentlemen, how's it going? Things are well. How are you? Ah, living that dream. We had a long weekend here at the Fool. We had a snow day yesterday, thanks to all that Induced snowfall. Induced long weekend or That's longer right. weekend? A longer weekend, exactly. Just trying to stay warm. Exactly. You know, and it's it's great to be here with you guys once again. Uh, plenty to get to today, including earnings from Angie's List and determining which is the most hated retailer in America. But first, let's talk Buffett. Warren Buffett, the Oracle himself, has recently exited his position in Exxon. That's a $3.7 billion stake. He's just washed his hands of it. Uh, Mike Olson, what's what's Mr. Buffett thinking here? Uh, I, I can only speculate as to what he's thinking. It's also worth noting that they did exit other energy holdings this quarter, National Oil Wealth, Arco, and ConocoPhillips. Mm-hmm. Um, but my broader view, if I'm going to go ahead and think about Exxon, and we're taking a 10-year view of this company, there are two things that you're considering. First is that Exxon is the largest or one of the largest oil companies in the world. They produced, uh, I think, about 1% of global production in oil last year, which, if we're putting things in context, is a lot. <laughs> um, and so you have to do a lot of running to stay in place if you're Exxon. Their ability to grow production. It's probably going to be relatively challenged. Then you consider the other end of the spectrum, which is to say that their funding and development costs, and by that I mean the cost to drill for a given barrel of oil, are on order of twenty to thirty dollars per barrel. Hmm. These are very, very, very low costs, and they owe to legacy properties that Exxon has. When you go ahead and you think about this on a going forward basis, is Exxon necessarily going to be able to drill for oil at twenty or thirty dollars a barrel? I don't think so. Okay. And so then you go ahead and put this in context. Exxon trading at 12 times earnings. Is that necessarily trailing earnings? Bear in mind, that does not include much of the oil price route that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Is that necessarily a sustainable quantity? Can they go ahead and grow production or more or less hold head above water and keep that cost structure intact? I have a little bit of a hard time figuring out how that's going to happen. Hmm. Now, bear in mind, I do think I own Exxon shares, and I think that one thing if there were a way that Buffett could be wrong here, Exxon has proven an expert buyer of assets during periods of distress. Whenever energy markets turn south, they've always had the best balance sheet in the business, and they are the most return on invested capital-focused management team in the business. Would not at all be surprised to see them picking up some assets for a song right about now. Hmm. So, you know, that's kind of your watchword on how Buffett may be wrong. That being said, you know, it's hard to really go ahead and think about ExxonMobil shares and envision them being much of a market outperformer from here right. on forward. Right. Old, you know, slow and steady, old reliable ExxonMobil. Right. I mean, they're they're certainly not going anywhere, but they are <laughs> they're not going to shoot the lights out either. What what kind of confuses me or per- perplexes me a little bit more is that Buffett's selling out of some of his other energy stakes like you mentioned. That that's what I find a little Curious at this right. point. And the I Conoco mean, th- one is just a, it's a s- infinitesimal stake. It's right. super small. Sorry, mm-hmm. go on, Mike. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, and I think Conoco, you could very easily argue the very same, the same thing that you are saying in Exxon, it being a very large company. Uh, National Oil, well, um, if you're of the mindset that there's a re- reset on oil prices, and in fact, they are moving permanently lower as the Saudis go ahead and reconsider their strategic calculus and newer, lower-cost sources of oil come online as people find efficiencies in shales. Mm-hmm. You know, National Oil Wells, bread and butter, which is deep water, 
maybe they just aren't going to make as much money as they historically have because demand for deep water rigs isn't going to be there. I mean, and that, I think I think it's a very relevant consideration at this point in time. Talk about a segue. We have a reader email here for or a listener email here, excuse me, from Mr. Hilton Early out in Park City, Utah. Uh, he notes that there has been a lot of discussion of oil stocks on the show lately, but one name he hasn't heard is Atwood Oceanics. That's ATW. Could you discuss it on the show? I'd love to hear feedback from your regular contributors. We got two contributors right here. And Dave Kretzman, uh, you took a look at Atwood for Mr. Hilton. What'd you find there? Well, going off of what Mike mentioned, the dynamics of the oil industry right now are not very attractive, especially for a company like Atwood, I would say, because mm-hmm. Atwood is uh, an offshore drilling contractor. So they're basically exploring drilling for oil in deep water rigs, like in the ocean. Right. Um, this company hasn't been free cash flow positive since 2010. They're burning about $200 million in cash a year. Uh, they have $122 million in cash, $1.7 billion in debt. Ooh. And they just started paying a dividend, which is something I <laughs> kind of wonder about. <laughs> that makes like, sense. The, the timing doesn't make sense to me. It's like, okay, you're, you're struggling to generate any positive cash, and then you're going to start paying a dividend there. It's not a huge dividend, but still, I kind of wonder the capital allocation strategy here. Right. So just just considering the the macro trends at play with oil right now, Atwood as a business is not very attractive from a cash perspective. Mm -hmm. So I have a hard time getting excited about Atwood right now because the company is not in a very attractive position with you know their cash, their debt. They're not able to produce positive free cash flow. If oil prices stay depressed for you know a prolonged period of time for a year or two, I don't know how Atwood. Would, would fare. So it wouldn't be a, it's not a company I look at now. Like the, the stock has been beaten up with a lot of energy stocks over the past few months. It's not one that I see, oh, that, that's got to be a bargain. Right. I, I would look. I elsewhere. was just going to ask, is there an acquisition at all, maybe in the cards, or is it just, the, the, it just doesn't make sense? It, it doesn't look very attractive to me. And, and something I, not completely related to Atwood, but related to energy. Uh, I, I was reading an article yesterday, and the boom in, like, as we know, the boom. Uh, in the U.S. with energy production, with oil production, has been onshore, primarily with shale. Like, production of shale oil uh, in the U.S. has tripled between 2010 and 2013. Mm. And U.S. production as a whole has about doubled over the past 10 years, largely due to that shale oil. A lot of that shale oil, and I I just thought this was an interesting piece of trivia, a lot of that shale oil is being transported on uh, trains. Mm -hmm. So in 2008, uh, 9,500 carloads of crude oil traveled by rail. So, 9,500. What do you think that number was in 2013? Oh, give it a guess, Mike. I'm, I'm going to guess it was about roughly somewhere between 30 and 50%, just because I know the rails have been adding capacity at breakneck pace, oh and they God, couldn't really keep so up smart. with it. <laughs> it's oh, so, so analytical. I love yeah, it. No, that's why I wanted him to answer. <laughs> I'm going to say three. Three? So, this is, so, I was asking how many carloads of, of, of rail. Yeah, it's actually 400,000. Wow. Up wow. from 9,500 in 2008. So you went from 9,500 in 2008 to 400,000 in 2013. I thought that was some interesting trivia. Kind of showcases that the oil production in the U.S. Mm-hmm. anyway has been coming onshore, you know, through the the shale oil production. Right. So that's that's not something that Atwood uh, benefits from. But mm-hmm. yeah, Atwood, I don't I don't really see this as a bargain yeah, opportunity I right think, now. I think one thing you have to go ahead and be mindful of is Atwood. Um, to your point on all that capex. Um, they engaged in perhaps the least fortuitously timed upgrade of their entire rig fleet on mm. God's green earth. Just about everyone thought that there was going to be a lot of demand for deep water drilling. And so the entire industry went ahead and decided they were going to revamp their fleet. You have a huge supply of rigs coming to market right now. Day rates have basically just been absolutely cut. And so whatever your whatever your view on deep water drilling, 
Atwood is really working against, I mean, it has sort of twin headwinds, which is the oversupply of deep water rigs right now and the route in oil prices. It's going to be very difficult to meaningfully assert what these what these guys should earn on a stable state basis. I'm very much of the same mind as David here. All right, there you go, Hilton. Sorry to give you the bad news, but uh, keep on watching the stock. Who knows what could happen? And if anyone else out there has any emails, questions, comments, concerns, uh, feedback from Mike Olson, uh, just send us an email at radio at fool.com. Yeah, only you. I don't, I don't <laughs> send them all to Mike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she give you Mike's personal email. Uh, moving right along, Angie's List reported earnings earlier today. Uh, shares are up over 40% today because for the first time ever, guys, we have positive EBITDA. Hooray! That kinda, means yeah, it's a it's great like company. before a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Angie's List, uh, we were talking about this before the show. They're just, so, for everyone else out there, uh, their business model is paid. Uh, it's a membership model wherein you pay a membership to see reviews of local businesses. So if you want to revamp your home, you can look up uh, plumbers on Angie's List and find whichever one strikes your fancy, whichever one's rated the highest. The problem with that, Mike, is you can also do that on, say, Yelp, uh, Google. I don't know if you heard about them. A thousand and one other sites out there. How, how does Angie's List stay in business? Yeah. So I mean. I, I think there is a real and good business here and that there is there is a very positive and I mean there's a meaningful network effect here and that there are a lot of reviewers there is a critical mass of people listed on there and all the service providers of course have a very vested interest in going ahead and also paying Andy's, Angie's list membership fees mm. because this isn't like some sort of like you know joke sort of Yelp type thing where you have your friends giving a review um, that being said you know you're got let's go ahead and zoom out and think about this you know, across a 10-year horizon. Mm. And your ability to go ahead and meaningfully judge how many members these guys should have, what their market size is, and whether or not they're going to be able to continue to renew these members, I don't need to be going ahead and figuring out a plumber, like, <laughs> where I need I need to have this membership for five years, because what if what if the stack rankings for plumbers change? I mean, you got to keep up to date with that. Right. Um and so, you know, I mean, the argument might be that these guys have relatively fixed costs. Um, I mean, to their credit, their marketing and their acquisition costs for members down substantially. Right. And I would imagine that's a lot of what the market itself likes. The idea would be, you know, maybe these guys go ahead and scale into what they're, you know, into their fixed costs. And thereafter, the incremental profitability is great. The trouble there is figuring the extent to which they can indeed scale into that. You got a company which, as you said, Making no money. Nope. Zip. Yeah, I'm, and I'm reading here. In 20 years, the company's never posted an annual profit. It's like, what, when are they actually gonna <laughs> right. show I mean, something? It's there. like, well, they're the same <laughs> as Amazon. Then it's fine. Well, yeah. no, I mean, they're in business for the customers. They just want to go ahead and provide the plumber reviews. Right. I mean, it's it's got a 300 million dollar valuation. I and you know, you kind of have a hard time thinking about what that market is. So, mm. you know, good business. I just would not really be an investor in it. <laughs> That's well said. David, how old are you? I'm 22. Have you ever used Angie's List? Never. And I, I don't really watch TV that often, but I have seen the commercials. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know if I'd ever really need that. I, I got the Google. I got the, the, the phone Google machine. and the Google machine. Yeah. I, for, so I'm 26. For us younger guys, this is really a site for, like we said, people who are renovating their homes. They're going to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars. What's an extra 20 bucks to learn which is the best plumber so you can get the perfect, you know, Plumbing system, I guess. For you and me, I mean, I'm 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 not interested in that at all. And if I ever did become interested in that in the next month or so, I'm just gonna Google. 
That's well, right. I mean, moreover, you know, let's just go ahead and theoretically presuppose that some old guy such as myself is renovating a house. Ancient. Which I'm not. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, I'm not going to be in an ongoing, like, a semi-continuous state of flux with respect to, like, the condition of my house. And right. so, I mean, just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's the, the issue is how do you maintain an ongoing customer relationship? Because once you find a plumber or electrician, you don't need to go through Angie's List to, to contact them or hire them again, yeah. if, you, if you even need that, and that's right. not going to be a recurring service. I agree. Right. Yeah. All right, lots of questions there. Uh, finally, we gotta we got to talk about the worst retailer in America. Uh, this is from the it's consumer's perspective. It's also the biggest retailer in America. Sure, surprise, <laughs> surprise. It has been the worst retailer in America in 2011, 2012, 2013, and now... This year, Walmart. Did they is, get a plaque this year? They should. They, they should get a statue for some of this. The, so it's a score out of 100. Uh, Walmart got a 68. Uh, the highest score was Nordstrom at 82. The average score was 77. Uh, so let's begin with Walmart. Uh, Mike, you just hit the nail on the head. It's still the largest retailer in the world. Does it really matter that people are miserable going there? Because they're still going to go there. Well, I mean, in fairness here, Walmart has been sort of structurally challenged with respect to its condition in the States. They have struggled to grow their comparable same-store sales uh, for for some time now. Um, but, I mean, I think, you know, you really can't – it's inextricable where, you know, to, to sort of remove yourself from the Walmart mm. uh, if you are the average American – it's just not happening, um, and it speaks to sort of the enviable market position they have built for themselves. And I know the fact that you know, with with scale and supply chain efficiency um, comes the ability to offer goods at very very low prices. Mm. And so, whether your customers like you or not, they will continue to shop there. Um, you know, to the extent. I guess if we were to go ahead and invert this, if they could actually meaningfully improve that customer experience. Right. Think about that. Think if they were the most beloved retailer in America. Right. I mean, well, I, I, I think the first thing they could do if I were to offer a piece of advice is the greeters there. Always, <laughs> always creepy people. I mean, like, just get rid of the greeter. I don't, I don't want to see the greeter. Cut um, costs, save yeah. on the creeps. That makes sense. Kretzman, mm-hmm. uh, what's your take on this? Do you, do you care at the end of the day? I mean... The only time I've really used Walmart was uh, in college. I, I went to college in Berea, uh, Berea, Kentucky. It's a small college town, and Walmart was the the thing you you went to. It was a place to be on the weekends. You know, go go shopping, buy some peanut butter or something. Oh God, uh, this is so sad. I, know. Hey, I mean, it, it was a few years ago, or a couple years ago. Wow. Um, when you go into Walmart, I mean, for me, I, I knew what I was going for when, when I went to Walmart. I'm not expecting this luxurious experience. I want something that that's cheap, cheap and simple. And I think Walmart does a pretty good job as far as retailers go. But what what I thought was interesting about this uh, customer satisfaction survey, so Walmart, their score now is uh, 68. That's Mm -hmm. down from 81 in 1995. So you kind of see this trending down pretty consistently. I don't think it's something the company should ignore because competition is heating up with with Amazon uh, and with other retailers. But yeah, I, I don't know. Walmart's a company I don't really get excited. I definitely don't get excited about it as an investor. Right now, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, who wants to take a bet uh, next year at the end of the night or at the end of this year? Does Walmart get worst in America again, five years in a row? Well, who wants to put some money on it? There's kind of a negative feedback loop, which which comes in that, which is to say that, you know, if you're the worst retailer in America, um, your ability to attract. Um, highly incentivized and or excited employees, particularly at the rates they're paying, not mm. for nothing, um, 
that is not necessarily improved. Right. And so, you know, I I can't imagine things getting meaningfully better there. <laughs> Me neither. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Mike Olson, Dave Cressman, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Mark. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.